I love, 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 love to hear you guys sing to the Lord. Make no mistake, we want the attention to be on Him, not on ourselves, not on anyone on this platform, ever. Um, I have a personality that sometimes I'm quite sure, I know, uh, gets in the way of you seeing what God wants, and I'm praying about that and asking what I should do and how I can be different as I continue my discipleship to Jesus so that you can see Him. That's the point. We're at the beginning of a new year. Are you excited? Yes. Okay, yeah, well, you know. No, I think you were right the first time. You're not, and that's okay. There is no excitement worse than manufactured excitement. If you're not, that's okay. Let me tell you why I am. And I hope that this message sets a, a vision and a direction for what God wants us to do. I'm excited about 2016. In a lot of ways, 2015 was a, a spectacular year as a church family. Uh, we've grown as we never have uh, before we saw God some, do some wonderful things, and I believe He wants so much more. I don't think we've yet scratched the surface. For instance, and don't, get, don't take this as a mandate. I think this is the year that we could break through and have three services to accommodate more and more people coming to Crosspoint. That's, that's a big picture. I can also envision that this being the year where we begin constructing a proper bathroom for all the people who will be coming to Crosspoint. Now listen, we live in Huntington Beach. Have you ever worked with the city of Huntington Beach in terms of new construction? It ain't easy. Okay? The next pastor may be the one that gets to cut the ribbon on the bathroom, but we, we've, after 51 years, we've heard your cries. Okay? It took half a decade, but we, half a, half a century, um, but we, we get it. A uh, church of hundreds and hundreds of people and bathrooms for six people is just not a good equation, all right? We understand that. I would, more than anything, pray that the, what this passage that I'm about to read to you communicates in a very dark setting would be true of Crosspoint. Today we're going to be talking about the purpose of God's grace. Grace is probably the most talked about and least understood thing in the world. There's good reasons for that. Nothing in the world operates on the basis of grace except God Himself. School is not based on grace. That's why they have something terrible called a GPA. The first word is what matters most. G stands for grade. Did you make the grade? Did you earn it? Your job certainly does not operate on the basis of grace, right? Would you expect to leave your job for the next three months and the checks continue to be uh, arriving in your bank account? No, that would be… God. If they're hiring, let the rest of us know, okay? But, but nobody expects to stop going to work and get the same salary, the same, same hourly wage. It doesn't work like that. It's a transaction. And grace is not a transaction. It's a transformation. For the recipient, grace is the most amazing thing in the world. And we've just come through Christmas where, hopefully, in your family, when you open your presents, some grace was shown. Were there presents? It's a very, we're off to an incredibly rocky start this year. I'm asking fairly simple questions and getting, well, 
I was once in a museum uh, with statues that reminded me <laughs> very much of the countenance of many of you right now. We're at, I'm, I'm, I'm a parent now and, and a spouse, a husband. What I love at Christmas, and it's getting harder and harder because I've been married for over 20 years and my kids are teenagers now, what you live for as a gift giver, and especially at Christmas time, is that grace moment, that wow, I can't believe you got me this moment. It's hard to get with teenagers. I don't think there's much of anything I could put under the tree that would cause one of those viral video freakouts of excitement, right, where the kid's just so pumped, he is in disbelief that it actually showed up under the tree. Now, when you have teenagers, you can't put it under the tree. You have to put it in the garage to, <laughs> to get that kind of a reaction. But that's what we're working for as parents. You want to give something that makes people amazed that you would give that. That's one way to think of the grace of God. See, what you'll hear from this pulpit this week and every week is a reminder in some way of one portion of the Bible or another of God's story, which is a story of grace. And that's a good thing. But the danger of that is that you hear the news of His grace, His unmerited favor, His blessing beyond expectation, beyond earning, beyond any ability to deserve it. You hear that so often. It becomes commonplace. It becomes old hat. I had a little glimpse of what God's grace means yesterday when we told my older son goodbye again because he's in college now and he goes, goes to school out of state. And I, as I hug, I'll embarrass him a little bit since he's not here and he won't listen to the podcast. I... Um, <laughs> I hugged him, and I thought to myself, you know, as he's going to drive by himself to, to Phoenix, this thought hit me. I wouldn't give this boy's life for anybody else's. I would not willingly sacrifice his life for anyone. I'd sacrifice my life for his, but I would not knowingly send him to be killed for anybody else. He may want to do that, but I don't want to do that. I, his father, want to keep him close. That's why those goodbyes are so tough. I want to enjoy my kid. God's grace is so big that he sent his son into a sin-wrecked world that God made and we ruined, knowing that the son was being sent to die. The grace of God says that the son went into the world knowing exactly that's what he would do. He would not be a victim. He would be a willing sacrifice to bring us into the family of God that we had shunned, turned our back on. It's just, it's amazing. And if the good news that you hear from the Bible time after time, it can't, we, nobody can live on that spiritual high of understanding and insight. We're just not wired that way in this world. There's ups and downs, and I get that. But if you're not occasionally moved by grace where you would wonder, why would God show me grace like that? If you're no longer like that little kid unwrapping that package and just being completely blown away that somebody loved you enough to get this for you, chances are you've lost sight of what grace is and what its purpose is. So today from the book of Titus, I want to tell you why God showed us so much grace. 
And when we read the book of Titus, let me give you a little background. You're reading a short letter to a young guy in a really tough place. Paul had left Titus behind, one Christian among just a few, in a very disorderly society where people were characterized, apparently world famous, for being bad people. There were a few Christians there, but the churches were in disorder. They didn't have proper pastoral leadership yet, yet the very first chapter gives a long laundry list of qualifications. These are the kind of elders, pastors, shepherds that the church is going to need. Titus, I left you there to put things in order. Look with me in the book of Titus. You'll see what I mean. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And the next several verses tell you what kind of people are fit to be elders, leaders, shepherds, pastors in the church. And it's not an easy assignment because it says in verse 10, for there are many, here's the reason for pastors, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. One of the things that haunted Paul's ministry is he had his fellow Jews and circumcisers, relig religious Jews, follow Paul and basically give a message like this. We're so glad you heard about Jesus, but you should know if you don't have circumcision and keep kosher, there's absolutely no way that God could ever accept you. God gave His law, and if you don't keep it, you will be damned. And those people followed Paul everywhere and stirred up news against the gospel everywhere he went. Verse 11, remember this is Titus's mandate, okay? This is his job description. Put yourself in his situation a little bit. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Their false teaching is destroying families and their motivated, false teachers always are. What's the motivation of a false teacher according to that verse? Money. False teachers love what they can get out of their false teaching. As you're watching Christian broadcasting, please keep that in mind. Not every teacher who has a mass media platform is a false teacher, but many are, and make sure that you pray for discernment and try to get close enough to that ministry and observe the lifestyle of those people so that you can try to discern if there is an impure motivation like going to the bank and cashing all kinds of checks. Here is the context that Titus has been left in. One of the Cretans, that's where he is, the island of Crete, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says with the authority of the Holy Spirit, this testimony is, I've always wondered, I've loved all my life, I've wanted to meet a missionary to Crete and ask him if he teaches through the book of Titus what he does with this verse. You understand what's being said here? Paul says, listen, I left you in a dark, disorderly place with all kinds of false teaching that is destroying families swirling around. I want you to step up, quiet them down, and I understand what you're dealing with. One of their own writers said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and he's right. What is Titus to do? Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. How do you like his job description so far? 
It's tough, right? It's very tough. And the worst part of it, Paul said, this is why I, watch this, left you. I'm not there. I'm sending you a letter because I'm not there for you to lean on. When troubles come up, please feel free to write because we won't be talking. That's the environment in which Paul, after giving all this instruction and laying this mandate on, Titus reminds him of the grace of God. This whole letter really is a call to people in that church, beginning with their elders, spouses, even slaves. If you're a Christian, here's how you are to behave. Look now at my passage, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, the reason for all this change, for re the reason for all this good behavior is this, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You have that passage printed on your outline, yes? Can we read verses, the verses I just read to you from verse 11 to 14 together? This is the reason the grace of God appeared. This is left in the Bible, not only for Titus, but to tell us here is why God loved you the way He did. Here's the purpose for His grace. Let's read together. Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." If you've grown a little cold to the grace of God, if you don't know why you're loved that way, let me tell you. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, Paul says, for all people. I told you over this Christmas season that once your eyes are tuned to see it, you see the birth of Jesus everywhere. This is one of those passages. The appearance of Jesus in the world was a gift of God's grace. The Son came willingly in obedience to His Father to fulfill all the promises that God has made, and there was a specific time in history where the grace of God became physically visible. His name was Jesus. That's why John, one of the eyewitnesses of his life, said, we beheld Him full of glory. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He had the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Grace was materialized. It became visible. It became touchable. It became a reality in people's hearing that the grace of God in the person and the presence of the Son of God was on earth. That was the reason Jesus came. But that grace had a purpose. It says, training us. 
The grace of God has a training purpose, a teaching purpose. This is one of the misunderstandings of God's grace. People misinterpret the grace of God to sound something like this, God loves me so I can do anything I please. In fact, one of the barriers to people believing in the grace of God is precisely that misunderstanding. They think you're saying, God loves you, go do whatever you want. Paul says, no, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people, meaning not that everyone will be saved, but that everyone can be. That wicked people in Crete who are recognized by their own thinkers and their own writers to be persistent liars, characterized by laziness, so wicked that their own prophet called them lazy beasts. I mean, that's evil beasts. That's rough. You imagine reading that about America? Okay, and then Paul saying, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's right. I mean, that's a, that's a tough description of a, of a people group. Paul says to every kind of person, parents and spouses and slaves, salvation is now possible to everyone in the world because the grace of God has appeared, but it is training us. And the next verb is, if you follow on the passage, training us to do what? Renounce. To renounce training us, it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, training always has two sides. There's the things you turn your back on, and there's the things that you pursue. Any of you ever done any kind of training for a sport or for a job, for a new role? If you're in training to do something, there's things that you have to turn your back on and there's things that you have to pursue. It changes your life in two ways. For instance, if you have a job and you're being trained for a job, one of the things you have to turn your back on is the privilege of getting up whenever you like. They're going to expect you at a certain time. I was many, a few years ago and many pounds ago, I started training to do something really stupid called skyscraper racing. And you don't race skyscrapers, that would be impossible. What you do, believe it or not, is you find a skyscraper and run up it as fast as you can. It's a terrible idea, nobody should do it, okay? (laughs) On the rooftop, the first time I did it, I told a friend, I'm a little nervous, my heart rate will not come down. I'd been keeping track and it was like a hummingbird and it just wasn't. I thought this might be the end, you know, I'm buried in the red zone. I'm going to die on this rooftop. It's a great view of L.A., but... uh, I don't want to die as it, with it as the last thing I see. Now, I said, that was a few years and many pounds ago, because I was training to ran up a skyscraper, what sorts of things do you imagine I turn my back on? Donuts, for one, right? <laughs> if you're going to be serious and devoted to any specific thing, there's some things you have to renounce. There's some things that you have to get rid of. On the other hand, I became passionate, I became committed to running up and down stairs and jumping rope, doing all kinds of cardiovascular exercise in the hopes that I wouldn't die in the stairwell. This little phrase that grace is training us is vitally important if you're going to be a genuine follower of Jesus. Because Paul says one of the reasons that God showed you grace is to make us a different kind of people. A kind of people, first of all, who are learning to be like Jesus. That's the point of training. 
You're learning. There's a progression. It doesn't happen immediately. Over the course of that training, I lost about 30 pounds. Hard to believe now. I look at those pictures and wince. Those were good days. It was all a product of training, of progression, of what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. God gave you grace to set you free from the power of sin, but not to turn you over to your own devices so that you could do, that you and I could do anything we please, but to make us like His Son. Verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. My constant advice to you as you read the Bible, slow down and see if you can see connections between words. When we come to verse 13, self-controlled, upright, and godly, if you think through those words, they're connected. Everyone matters. Self-controlled means that you're godly, you're like Jesus on the inside. Jesus really has started changing you from the inside out. Your passions are being dominated and changed. Your affections are being directed by Jesus. That's self-controlled. What's the next word? Upright. That means your relationships with people on the outside. What other people in the world around you would know, they would see your life and say, that's a stand-up guy, that's an upright person. He is moral and righteous in his dealings with other people. The third word, the first is inside, the second is outside. The third word, Paul says, grace is training us to become what kind of people? Godly. That's vertical. Rightly related to God. It's all here. You are becoming a different person. You're becoming like Jesus Himself. Verse 12, we are being trained by the grace of God to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Every phrase matters. In the present age. Now, why did Paul say that? That phrase may be more timely now for American Christians than anything I could tell you. The American Christian response, at least as I see on social media and the reading I do and the blogs I follow, there's a big stream of American Christian thinking to see the world decaying around us and to armor up and hunker down, to build the bubble a little thicker, to retreat from the world. Paul doesn't sound a single note of retreat in what he is telling Titus and every single person in that little faith community in Crete to do. He is calling them to engage the world for their righteousness, for their goodness, for their love for God to be seen. All of this has to happen in the present age. Folks, yes, the world is hurtling toward disaster and chaos. That's why we're here. When God wants to reorder the world and usher in the end of the book and make new heavens and new earth, He absolutely will. He leaves us here for His time by His choosing, giving us His grace so that we can make a difference in the present age, right now, right here. While we look, Paul says, the next verse, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians follow Jesus into a sin-wrecked world, becoming more like Him, not like the world that is around them. Grace wants to change you truly from the inside out to make you more like Jesus, not more like the world. 
So one of the questions I've asked myself, and I'm not perfectly satisfied with the results, frankly, in the year that just transpired, can I visibly see that I am more like Christ than I was a year ago? That's the purpose of grace. Not to free me to do anything I please, but God gave His Son, this next verse says, God showed me grace. The grace of God showed up in the world to train me, to turn my back on my old way of living and thinking. To say along with first, in the first letter of Peter that the time to live like the pagans who don't know God, the time that I did that in the past is enough. I don't need to do that anymore. Now I need to change. And all the while, I'm waiting for our hope, which is the return of Jesus. In other words, God shows us grace to make, people who are, make us people who are learning to be like Jesus while we wait for His return. You see the connection? I hear a lot of teaching about the second coming of Christ that has, I'm just going to be really plain with you, it has an escapist hinge and invitation to us. The world is wrecked. Jesus, please come get us. That is our blessed hope. And in biblical terms, hope means this is, this is what's coming. This is a settled thing. This is future history. The return of Christ is just as certain as the birth of Christ. Jesus was born to show us God's grace. Jesus will return, Paul says, to show us His glory. That's going to happen. You're reading future history, but the point is not for us to retreat now. The, re the purpose of us following Jesus is to make a difference now. All the while, looking ahead in the confidence that when He pleases at the time of His choosing, not ours, He will come and finish the good work that He started. You ever waited with some, for someone with anticipation knowing that they were coming back? It's actually one of the great treats of being a kid, I think. When I was, many of you know, I was a missionary's son. And what that meant was that my dad traveled pretty often. He'd go on these long road trips and visit our supporting churches and left me wherever we happened to be living at the time, usually in Texas. He'd be gone for weeks, and one of the real treats of that time was along with the ache of missing my dad, was knowing that my dad was coming back, and I learned from an early age to look at a calendar and count the days. Because I knew when my dad came, when that door opened, always seems my childhood memories is that it, he was always coming home in the winter. And I could still feel the cold all over him. And looking back, you know, I got taller than my dad, but when I was a kid, my dad was this big giant of a man who knew everything and had all the money in the world. Good days for a kid. And I knew that my practically omnipotent dad, who did everything well, was coming home. And he always had gifts. He always brought these amazing grace moment kind of presents, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you got me this. That's kind of the spirit of what Paul's talking about here with Titus. He says, Titus, I've left you deliberately in a very difficult place, characterized by people who even their own prophets agree are some of the toughest, worst people in the whole wide world, but not to retreat 
but to remind everyone in that church the difference that grace makes, that grace has a purpose to train them, to teach them, to lead them through the progression that they are more like Jesus and to keep their eyes up because He actually will come back. That is the blessed hope. Look at verse 14 again. Waiting at 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, what's it say there? Zealous, Zealous for good works. While we wait for his return, while we learn to be like Jesus and wait for him to come back, what God wants us to do is to eagerly be doing good. God left us here waiting for His Son so that we would be eager about doing the good work that He has prepared for us to do. Zealous. It's quite an adjective. Zealous for good works. You see, one of the misunderstandings of grace and the, the heart of the misunderstanding of grace, I think, is this. God purchased the entirety of your salvation. That's what this verse says. Jesus appeared to redeem you from lawlessness, to make you God's own so that you wouldn't have to pay your own way. We've emphasized that so much. We've told people correctly, biblically, truthfully, that they could never, ever earn God's acceptance, love, favor. They could never merit their own way into God's family. That's not the way it works. You can't earn your way into it. We've told people over and over again, you'll hear it from me every time I preach, you cannot possibly earn God's forgiveness. And we're really clear on that, that we are not saved by good works. But hear what Paul is saying in this passage. We are not saved by good works, but make no mistake, we are most definitely saved for good works. What God is at work at doing, the reason for His grace is to make us different people, who are becoming more like His Son while we wait for His Son, and we zealously dedicate ourselves to good works. So here's the money question from this sermon. I want to give you a moment to think. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, would you take a moment and write down on your sheet the good works that you're zealous to do? I'm serious. That's not rhetorical. Take just a second. The purpose of God's grace is to train you and make you a different kind of person who turns his back on his old life and embraces the virtues and the righteousness of Christ. And you follow Jesus while you're always looking up and ahead, waiting for his return, all the while being very zealous, being passionate, being committed to eagerly do the good things that he wants you to do. Individual question. What are the good works that you are zealous to do? What makes your heart race? When you think about this present age, the darkness that we're currently experiencing, that our eyes are getting all, all too used to, what good works are you passionate about doing? This year, Crosspoint has seen some people unexpectedly, some people 
that we were not looking for that kind of investment and that kind of love for, get really passionate about good works. Over a year ago, God placed it in the heart of a single woman to go to the Ronald McDonald house that's attached to chalk and start visiting with and preparing meals for the families that have to be there. This year, the way the calendar worked out, they were there cooking and feeding and visiting and praying with people both on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. I can't imagine anything much more like Jesus than inconveniencing yourself like that when most of us just want to be home. When I arrive at this church on a day off, mid-morning, early morning, rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, and I discover that there are people involved in youth ministry who have spent the night here just to be close to students and enjoy time with them. That's zeal. They could be doing any number of things. When I see our church just surge forward in generosity through financial giving the way it has this year, when I understand that a lot of you are underemployed, some of you are actually unemployed, and you are giving still, that's a very Christian, that's a very Christ-like good work. When I get the call because things have gotten bad enough that somebody actually wants to talk to me, and I'm starting to visit with them as a pastor who finally got that tough phone call, and I realize that months and months and months of small group ministry have already taken place, and that person is much more encouraged, much more blessed, much more resilient because of the way their small group has loved on them before I even knew that all that trouble was coming. That's a good work. So, as I conclude this sermon and we think a little bit about what Jesus is doing here, what this would look like from a church perspective is that Jesus would take us and knit us together as His body, which we are as a local church, and individually uniting the members that He has called and that He has saved, make us zealous, passionate, committed to doing His good work in this dark world. This kind of thinking is not the norm in the world outside these walls. What this world increasingly cares about is awareness. The big thing now in the face of real trouble is to start a hashtag and hope it goes viral to raise awareness. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? You know what awareness creates? You know what difference awareness makes? It creates awareness, that's it. Jesus isn't like that. I can prove it. Was Jesus aware of our sin? What did He do about it? He stepped across the realm of His eternal home and entered into our world. He was far more than aware. He was involved. He was invested. He was committed. The point of this passage is that Jesus is making people like that. That's the reason He gave Himself. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Look how possessive this is. This is how much we belong to Him. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He paid the price of our sin to free us from what we used to be. 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to him. This all happens not because we're calling our own shots, but because he's in charge. When Paul says our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, if someone is trying to tell you the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, here it is. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a Greek grammar person, there is a grammatical construction under there called the Granville Sharp Rule that people have tried to overturn for about 200 years trying to make this passage say something other than what it does. What this passage says is when the grace of God appeared and Jesus showed up in the world, that was our Savior who is also our God. And what happens in an individual's life in a family's life and in a church's life is when people are willing to own Jesus not only as a Savior, but as their God. See, everybody wants a rescuer. Nobody wants to be told what to do for the rest of their lives after they've been rescued. That's the essence of discipleship, that you embrace Jesus not only as your rescuer, as your Savior, but you say, Lord, you are my God. You're not my life coach. Thank you for also being my friend, but your fundamental identity, eternal, uncreated, is you are God himself. You're in charge. You stepped into the world and showed your grace. You're coming back to show your glory. In the meantime, you expect that as I walk along with you, with every passing week, month, and year, with all my ups and downs, I will look more and more like you, and I will do the good work you have for me to do while I wait for you. That is what will make your Christianity come to actual, real, passionate, living life. you envision a church like that? There's about 600 of us now, maybe a little more, 650, 700 people who are in the orbit of Crosspoint call us home. Allowing for all that progression that it takes time and we're all in training, what would it look like if enough people from that group humbled themselves and opened up everything the Father has given them and said, Lord, you're not only my Savior, you're my God too. I understand that the purpose of your grace was not to set me free to do anything I pleased, but you want to train me by grace to be more like Jesus while I wait for Jesus and I busy myself doing the things that please Jesus. There's absolutely no telling what God would do here. This present age that we're living in is exceedingly dark. As the year continues to unfold, I'm going to bring in some reality and some awareness, not just to raise awareness, but to motivate action and let us come face to face with the darkness that surrounds us. Here's what I know about Orange County. You touch every home and it bleeds a little. Every single person who doesn't know Jesus in our community has no hope without him. You believe that? He is the hope. He is the rescuer. He is the Savior. And for us, He must also be our God. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this, God's grace is free, but it should never be in vain. The grace of God appeared in your life to make you an entirely different person, to place in you with your scars and your stars, in other words, the things that have hurt you and disappointed you and the things that have blessed you and changed you through all of that, to make you in the person that God wants you to be so that His good work is done in the world. Could you pray with me right now, please? Zealous for good works. 
not indifferent, zealous for good works. I asked you to make that list. Maybe you couldn't. That's okay. God loves you right there. He just doesn't want you to stay there. That's what grace does. It loves us where we are, but it refuses to allow us to stay there. If your life's just, if you're just kind of cruising, you're on cruise control with Jesus, there's not real passion there, you're not really amazed by that grace anymore, let me give you just a moment to ask Him to show Himself to you afresh, to show you the purpose of His grace in your life. And if you're real clear, if you could write down what you're, the good works that you're zealous for, if you're walking along with Jesus, that's your blueprint. That's your path. If He's put it in your heart, your family, your friends, this church needs that to happen in your life for us to become all that Jesus wants us to be. See, it's not just about adding a service or building a bathroom. It's about doing the good work of God in the world. That's the purpose that grace showed up. 2,000 years ago in Crete, in 2016 in Huntington Beach, the grace of God rules over all of that. And He wants to make people passionate for good works. Lord, may Your grace be sufficient, Lord, to this moment to speak to people about what You want from them and what You want for them. I thank You, God, for the countless people who have stepped forward, motivated by that grace, certainly not recognition, certainly not money, Lord. They're sacrificing financially to serve You. Thank You for that. Make this a year, Lord, where we can undeniably see the people of Jesus, the body He has purchased, His bride, moving forward in passionate love for people and for You to do zealously the good work you've called us to. I pray that in your name. Amen.